but they didn't waver in their faith because they were being driven by eternity. And there's some beautiful, beautiful language in Hebrews 11 that talks about, it says if they weren't waiting, they weren't looking for, I'll just paraphrase it here, they weren't looking for any kind of home here on this earth because they knew this earth wasn't their home. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly city. They were looking forward. They were being driven by eternity and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God because they weren't concerned with the things of this life and the rewards of this life. They were driven and they entrusted themselves to the promises of God for eternal life. So in the fall of 2015, I decided I wanted to start running again. Uh, Clearly, I stopped since that time, but um, I'd previously covered a fair amount of miles in 2010 when I was training uh, for a half Ironman triathlon. And to be clear, prior to 2010, I'd never willingly run, period. Uh, I'd been forced to run in sports, forced to run when I was in elementary school when they used to have the presidential physical fitness tests. Anybody remember those? The awards, and you'd run a mile, and you, as a kid, you have no clue how to pace yourself, so you just go out hot, and then you just finish, like, if you're going to die, basically, and you have to go to the nurse's office, or maybe that was just my experience. Um, but I'd trained in 2010 for a, a half, and let me be clear, half Ironman. I, no way could I do the full one. Uh, and then again, in the summer and early fall of 2014, I did some more training, um, but it had been at this point in the fall of 2015, over a year since I had put on the running shoes, and I was excited uh, for a new challenge. The idea was that the following year, I would uh, participate in the Des Moines Marathon. Now, this was November of 2015, uh, which meant that the Des Moines Marathon had just taken place a few weeks before I decided I wanted to start training uh, for the next one, but I was okay with that. I was okay with the idea of training for that long and kind of building up, you know, what I had lost and just getting in really good shape for that. Um, I was a model at that time of patience. Uh, I knew it was going to be a year. I set my mind to that. I was cool with it. Very patient uh, until about a month later. Uh, And then I wasn't patient at all. So my training was going better than I'd expected, meaning I was acclimating quickly to the mileage that I was putting in and Uh, I'd also, just because I do this kind of stuff, I'd begun digging deep into a new style uh, of racing that was not popular by any means at the time, but it was becoming a little bit more mainstream and gathering a little bit more mainstream fanfare. And this up-and-coming sport was called ultra running, if you've ever heard of that or not. Uh, By definition, ultra running was any race that was 31 and a half miles uh, and longer. So any race that's five miles longer than a marathon and longer and had terrain uh, that was off road or back country or trail or whatever you want to imagine. Some of these races are run uh, in mountains. Uh, And so these were not pavement-based races that took you through the downtown section of some major metropolitan area. Uh, In fact, it was quite the opposite. The more off-road, the more backcountry, the more wild the terrain, the more hilly, the more difficult, the more things you had to navigate, the better. That was really the heart of ultra running. Uh, And again, it wasn't popular by any stretch, but you were reading, uh, beginning to see more articles, more YouTube videos, more things about it. So the more that I read about ultra running, uh, the more I wanted to give it a try. And it just so happened that there was a 31 and a half mile ultra race uh, in Boonville, some of you know where that's at, that was going to be taking place about five months before uh, the Des Moines Marathon, which was what my original training goal was. But like I said, I had become impatient, training was going well, I'd read about this new sport and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. There's an ultra race, a 31 and a half miler, only a few minutes from my house, And I didn't know much about Boonville, but it turns out that it's a really, 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 really hilly uh, spot. And so when I read about the race, they said 29 and a half miles of the race, you're either going uphill or downhill. There's only two miles where it's flat. Uh, There's only one porta potty over the 31 and a half miles. 
there's only one aid station, which if you've ever run races, you know they have aid stations with like, you know, whatever, body armor and gummy bears and things like that to, to keep you going. There's only one aid station. Otherwise, you have to carry everything yourself for the 31 and a half miles, and you have to figure out how you're going to use the bathroom on uh, the 31 and a half miles, other than that porta potty, which isn't until mile 20. And so I was in. I was, I was in. It sounded amazing. Once I found out about it, I signed up right away. Uh, my plan, again, because this is how I roll, uh, my plan at that point was to use the Boonville 31 and a half mile race as a sort of training run to prepare me for my ultimate goal, which was the North Face 50 miler. Uh, that was going to be head in Mat held in Madison, Wisconsin in July of 2016. So I was excited about Boonville, but I was thinking this is just a means to an end in some ways. This is a way to really measure myself. But I really wanted, and again, why, I don't know, but I really wanted to run this North Face 50-mile race in Madison, Wisconsin in July of 2016. So like most things that I get excited about, I eased my way into it for about five seconds, uh, and then I really ramped things up. And, and got pretty hardcore. So I bought all the gear that you'd need. You'd be amazed at how much stuff you actually do need for this. I read everything I could read. I listened to podcasts. I read blogs. And of course, I trained like a man on a mission because I was. I was locked in. While browsing around online, I came across uh, this California-based ultra-running cohort or group that offered free training programs, so I instantly signed up and downloaded one of those, uh, and off I went. And at this time now, as I've ramped things up and I've gotten into it, I was doing crazy things, my friends, crazy things that I don't know why. So, some things, examples. I, would run, I live in Beaverdale. My family, we live in Beaverdale. And I would run from my house in Beaverdale. If you know where Snooky's is at, Snooky's Malt Shop, we live right over there. I'd run from my house over there to Whole Foods for a lunch meeting. I'd eat lunch, and I'd run home, right? I was doing things like that, showing up to Whole Foods all sweaty. It was weird. Um, I was running five laps at a time around the Raccoon River Park Trail, which is 3.1 3 miles, so it's a 5K, and I was running five laps uh, in the cold and snow and through the winter. There's a golf course I live really close to Waveland Golf Course, and I was running from my house to the golf course, then running the perimeter of the golf course, which is completely nuts, and then I was running down Polk Boulevard behind the art center where there's miles of trails, and then I was running basically straight back uphill up Grand, back to my home for the most brutal 10-mile run you can ever imagine. Like one time uh, when it was my day off of work, I was pastoring a church at the time, I had a, it was a day off, and my son Lincoln, I was in elementary, and he had only a half day of school that day, so I don't know what time he had to get there, eight, and then he was off at noon or whatever, and I left on a run as my wife was taking him to school, and I got home after he was already home uh, from school, I'd been running that whole time, Another time, my training partner and I ran nine miles uh, early on a Saturday morning, and the nine-mile route we took led us uh, up to the starting line of the Drake Half Marathon, and then we ran that race, uh, and then we ran back to my house afterwards. So these are, these are crazy, crazy things. Over the final four months or so of my training leading up to that 50K, or that 31-and-a-half-mile race in Boonville, I averaged running right around 55 miles a week. So that was my average, 55 miles a week, sometimes more than that, sometimes a little less. But this training program had the craziest way of getting you in shape for this. So you'd have one day on Friday, usually you'd have your long run. So like 22, 24, 20, whatever it was. And that's just, that's tough, right? And then the next day you have to run 10. And so that was like the way they kind of got you acclimated. So I was doing stuff like that. And, you know, almost the whole time I was doing this and over almost all the miles I ran, um, I did not ever, to my recollection, wear headphones. Uh, and I never thought about anything really other than the finish line. I would just envision the race the whole time I was running. I would focus on it. I repeatedly envisioned what it would be like to cross that finish line, how I'd feel, the glory of it all, you know, how much I would eat afterwards, just destroy some buffet somewhere. That's part of the reward for that, right? And I was just driven 
by finishing well. Race day came, and it was an amazing environment. I trained so hard. Uh, the race director led the small group uh, of participants for this particular race, about 70 or so of us, uh, across a bridge out near Boonville. And at the front of uh, us, as we were walking kind of two by two, you know, lined up like that, there was a guy playing bagpipes right as the sun was coming up. And it was like the most idyllic, incredible environment imaginable. Um, and you're just like locked in. And then he, after we crossed the bridge, then he played the national anthem on the bagpipes. And uh, the gun went off and the race began. And overall, the race, without taking the rest of this morning to talk about the race, it couldn't have gone much better for myself and my training partner. Uh, the conditions were great. Uh, it just, it went pretty well overall. We were well above our projected pace uh, for the race. In fact, we had to uh, have some friends that were following along in a vehicle call my wife and some other people and say, hey, they're going to finish quite a bit sooner than they maybe thought, so you need to get out here as soon as possible. So we were well above our projected pace, and we ended up finishing 17th and 18th overall uh, in the race. We had a dead sprint for the last 100 meters, and I'm sorry to say that he out, he nudged me by about that much. If you look at the record still on the Boonville Backroads Ultra, you'll see that he beat me by one second. Uh, and so I'm still bitter about that, but it's okay. Um, so if you've ever done anything like this, whatever it might be, your version of that, maybe it was just a 5K, that's okay. Whatever it was or some kind of competition, some sort of thing that you've worked hard and trained for, you, you know what it is to have that sort of post-event elation, right? Like you cross the finish line and you just have this like, it's hard to even describe it unless you've experienced it. Like, I, I just did that. Like I've thought about this, I've trained for this, I've done all these things for months, I've put in all this work and, I, and, it's, and I've done it. Like it, it went well. You have this post-event elation followed shortly after by the post-event letdown. Right? You are emotionally drained. The physical part of it is not a huge deal, really, because you've trained for it. But emotionally, you're drained because you've put, again, so much time and effort and mental energy, and you've expended so much of your thought life on that. You're just drained. In fact, I stepped aside for a while by myself. I kind of found, like, an area of trees, and I just kind of went over there, and I didn't fully, like, start crying but I definitely got tears in my eyes as I just kind of took some deep breaths and realized like what I'd done and what I'd accomplished, but I was just like, all of that emotion was just coming out. So then, about a week or two after the event was over, so again, this is now early summer 2016, I realized something. Everything I'd done, all the work I'd put in, the ridiculous amount of focus, the borderline obsessive behaviors, it wasn't worth it. I realized it wasn't worth it. It hadn't been worth it. And as simple as I can say it, it just wasn't. And I recognized that fact about a week after. You know, in fact, I'd be driving down the street, wherever, near my house, and I'd see someone running down the street. And it would give me this sort of like mini anxiety attack. Like I couldn't even imagine like running another 10 steps. I was totally burned out. And in the end, I decided not to do the North Face 50-mile race. I just couldn't mentally grasp training that hard again and then having to run 18 and a half miles further than I had just run. It seemed unfathomable, impossible. But more than that, I'd put in so much time, exerted so much effort, expended so much mental energy, all to accomplish something I could say I'd done to maybe impress a select few people. But truth be told, no one really cared. No one really cared all that much, and I realized I didn't really care all that much either. In the end, it was a moment of fleeting glory that left me feeling a bit hollow and empty in quite a few ways. You know, we're in this series right now, simply called Jesus, and it's broken up into three sections 
Be with Jesus was the first section, which we concluded a while back. Become like Jesus is the section we're in right now that I'll finish up next week. And then we'll enter into do what Jesus did is the one that leads us into Easter and up to Easter Sunday. But right now we're in become like Jesus. And there are a lot of things you can say about Jesus. The most important thing when it comes to his identity is that he is the Messiah. That's the absolute most important thing about Jesus in a long list of important things. I talk to the youth group about this all the time. Lots of things we want to talk about surrounding Jesus, and they're all important, but the most important by far is that he is the Messiah. That's the most important thing about his identity. But maybe the most defining characteristic of his life, and we've talked about a lot of different things. Pastor Jordan has shared about gentleness and humility and forgiveness We've talked about all kinds of other different characteristics of Jesus, but maybe the most important defining characteristic of his life was that he was driven by eternity. Jesus was driven by eternity. He took many different detours during his ministry into many different towns and villages and all kinds of things that he did. But ultimately, he was always moving down this path towards Jerusalem. He was always moving down this path toward the cross. He was always moving in the same direction, and that direction was towards eternity. And we're going to talk about that for the rest of our time together this morning. So to become like Jesus, Jesus was driven by eternity, and we want to be the same. There are so many scriptures in the New Testament that talk about this, and we're going to look at a bunch of them, but before we do, I want to begin with a quote. And it's not a quote that right away you're just going to be like, oh, I get that. So if you're the picture taker, if you're a note taker, whatever. It may be worth jotting it down. It's not lengthy by any stretch, but it's important that we sort of frame some things up this way this morning. So this quote is by a guy, uh, an English dude named Graham Cook, and Graham Cook says this. He says, many, uh, most of us have been trained to try and live the best life possible in Egypt. Most of us have been trained to try to live the best life possible in Egypt. I want you to think about that. What he's speaking to, and I'll give you a little insight into it, and then we're going to move on. Egypt was a place of captivity for the Israelites. Egypt was a place where the Israelites were enslaved. Israelite, Egypt was a place where the Israelites were minimized and had no rights and were essentially controlled by Pharaoh and by his government. And they, the Old Testament describes their lives as harsh and bitter. And what Graham Cook is saying is most of us Christians, for whatever reason, we've been trained to try to live the best life possible in this place of captivity, this place of oppression, this place of slavery. Instead of moving out into the abundant life that Jesus has promised us, we're just doing our best to make the best life possible while still under the thumb of the enemy. It's a big statement, I know. So moving on, I saw, uh, I've seen this many times, and I'm sure you have as well, but I saw a bumper sticker the other day. Uh, It simply just said, uh, hashtag Y-O-L-O. Some of you older people may not have a clue what that means. I had to think about it, YOLO. Hashtag YOLO. Hashtag YOLO. You only live once. You only live once. So the idea there is sort of this move towards hedonism where you only live once. So let's suck all of the pleasure that we possibly can out of life. Let's have experiences. Let's run ultra marathons and go to Hawaii. And let's do all these things that we want to do because we really just want to suck all we can out of life because you only live once. It's not true for Christians. Not true for Christians. And it's not a way that we're called to operate. What we do in life 
echoes in eternity. And yes, Russell Crowe says this in Gladiator, but it's also remarkably solid theology. What we do in life echoes in eternity. We don't only live once in the way that it's expressed in our culture. So let's look at a handful of scriptures that speak to what's at the heart of this message, the heart of this idea, the heart of becoming like Jesus in the sense that he was driven by eternity and so should we be. So let me give you a bit of context before we jump into this first section of verses Hebrews chapter 11, many of you are probably familiar with that. It's what's known uh, as the hall of fame of faith in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, it recounts a whole bunch of people from the Old Testament forward who had amazing, incredible faith and who followed God despite all kinds of evidence, in many cases to the contrary, where they didn't know what they were stepping into or what they were walking into or they had no call other than just go, but they trusted And it says they were counted righteous. They were counted worthy because of their faith. And it goes through this laundry list of people. And then it talks about early martyrs. And it talks about people that it says they were like sawed in half. And they were, you know, put in prison. And all these terrible things happened to them. But they didn't waver in their faith because they were being driven by eternity. And there's some beautiful, beautiful language in Hebrews 11 that talks about, it says if they weren't waiting They weren't looking for, I'll just paraphrase it here, they weren't looking for any kind of home here on this earth because they knew this earth wasn't their home. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly city. They were looking forward. They were being driven by eternity, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God because they weren't concerned with the things of this life and the rewards of this life. They were driven And they entrusted themselves to the promises of God for eternal life. It is with that context that we look at Hebrews 12, where it begins to talk then about Jesus and how Jesus himself was driven by eternity. So it follows in the heels of the hall of fame of faith and all these people, but then it sort of climaxes, it hits that apex part with Jesus. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2a, and this is the New Living Translation which I don't use a ton, but I really like this particular version. So it says, and I think we have that on the screen, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. If you know anything about sprinting, which I don't, but I've heard that when you're sprinting, the idea is your eyes should always be on the finish line. You're not supposed to look to the right or to the left because it slows you down. So the author of Hebrews is using this running metaphor here. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Now, here's where it gets into the driven by eternity piece. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Notice it didn't say that he enjoyed the cross. We know that he didn't. In fact, we know that in his final moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked multiple times if the cup could be removed from him, if there was any other way. But then he follows that prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because of the joy awaiting him, because he knew the promises the Father had made to him, because he knew what it would gain him in terms of rescuing people that he loved because he knew that he'd get to spend eternity with the Father and eternity with many of us. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. He wasn't worried in the classical sense about what it was going to look like or any of that stuff because he knew the fruit that it would produce 
Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. We're called to be driven by eternity. We're called to be driven by the joy that's awaiting us. And there are things in this life, and I know you know this, that we have to oftentimes endure, but there are also things that we're called to move past and not worry about how the world may or may not look at us because of a certain way we behave. We're called to disregard the shame that the earth may heap upon us, that the world may heap upon us because of the joy that awaits us. We're called to be driven by eternity, to have our eyes fixed on the finish line, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's keep going. One of the primary Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, a Messianic prophecy is simply a prophet that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak things that were future, in this case, seven, six, seven hundred years in the future, the case of Isaiah, that, were, that foretold the coming of Jesus and certain characteristics of him and certain things that would happen to him. One of the most famous, my personal favorite, comes from Isaiah 53. Again, I'm using the New Living Translation. This is just verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, again, this is prophetic. When he, speaking of Jesus, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, what is it that he accomplished on the cross that makes him satisfied with such a horrible experience? Something that he considered worth it. Some translations say, when he sees the fruit of his suffering, he will count it all worth it. What is the fruit of his suffering? First and foremost, of course, it's the defeat of the works of the enemy. It says in 1 John 3 that Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. That's why he came. But he accomplished that. But what is the fruit of that? The fruit of that is the redemption of you and I. He considered that worth it. He considered all the pain, all the anguish, all the suffering, all the sorrow, all of that stuff worth it because he knew that he would get to spend eternity with you and I. And that's not something we talk about a lot. We often, and it's okay, talk about it the other direction, and I totally get it. We talk about how we get to spend eternity with Jesus, and that is amazing. We can't conceive of that, and that's what it kind of means to be driven by eternity. We're going to talk about that some more towards the end here, but let's talk about it from the other angle for a second. Jesus was driven by eternity, and he considered it all worth it, that he gets to spend eternity in heaven with us. And think about that. And we've talked about this before, right? And this is not part of this particular sermon, but I think it's a somewhat important caveat. If Jesus right, the Messiah, God in the flesh, looked at the cross and knew what he'd have to go through and knew what it would gain him, and he considered it worth it, and he was satisfied that he would get to spend eternity with you and I. So he assigned that level of value to us. Who are we to disagree with him when it comes to our own view of ourselves? He considered us worth it we should consider ourselves worth it as well. Again, that's just a bit of an aside, but I think it's important at that point. Another messianic prophecy in Isaiah 50, 6 through 7. Um, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Okay? So this is fulfilled. So this is a prophecy spoken six, seven hundred years before Jesus. This was fulfilled in Luke 9, 51. And this is the Living Bible translation, and I love it. So this is the 700 years before Isaiah prophesied this. And then towards the end of Jesus' life, it says, As the time drew near for his return to heaven... So he's getting towards the end of his ministry, the end of his earthly life. He moves steadily onward toward Jerusalem with an iron will. 
You'll see other translations, and maybe some of you have pulled those pulled open that say, as the time drew near for her, his return, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. So Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Luke is invoking this prophecy of Isaiah, and he's saying this is the culmination, the fulfillment of this, that yes, Jesus had 30 years, we don't know much, and then he had this ministry, and he was healing people and casting out demons and raising the dead and proclaiming the kingdom of God and proclaiming the gospel and the good news to the poor, and he was doing all these things, and they were so important, but all the whole time he was doing this, He's also putting one foot in front of another, always oriented towards Jerusalem. And at one point, he set his face like flint. He set his will to be an iron will. I will not be moved. I will not be distracted. I will not be, you know, in any way moved away from this. I'm going here, and I'm going to accomplish this. He set his face like flint. We don't have a great context for what that means because we don't just talk about flint like a lot around here. But flint, if you know anything about it, it's ridiculously hard, right? It's what they strike together to start fires. It actually appears or actually shows up in these really interesting rock formations, almost like someone took a black Sharpie and drew like on these white rocks. But what that actually is is the flint that kind of makes its way through the rock, and it's way, way, way harder than the rock that surrounds it. So this is a metaphor for he set his face like flint, that iron gaze. You ever seen Rocky Four? When Rocky gets up and he's in the face of Ivan Drago before the fight and his face is set like flint, right? He has an iron will. He's been training in the woods, carrying logs, going through snow. The time for the battle is here and he can't be moved. And Drago, even at one point after he's beaten up Rocky a lot, he even goes to his corner and he says he's not human. It's like a piece of iron. See how I brought that all around? He moved steadily onward toward Jerusalem with an iron will. We're to have our faces set like flint. We're to have iron wills and to be driven by eternity, to look towards the finish line. Let's keep going. My life goal, and believe me when I say that I don't always keep this in front of me the way that I wish I did, but I just want to still talk about it comes from Matthew 25. It's a parable that Jesus tells about a master that went away and left the servants in charge of some different stuff. And I'm not going to go into all of that. But at the end, he says that this master comes back and there's this one servant who, man, he just did an awesome killer job with what he was left in charge of. And the master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. And that is my life's goal is that someday when I'm no longer on this earth, that I'm no longer present in the body, but I'm with Jesus. That as I, however that's gonna look, I don't know how it looks if I enter through some pearly gates or whatever it is, but that when I show up, he looks at me, looks me in the eyes and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were not worried about the things of this world. You were consumed, you were driven by eternity. That's let me suggest that that's not a bad life goal for you to have. If you don't have one, you can steal mine. It's okay. I took it from the Bible. Paul, the apostle Paul echoes this. He was so consumed by eternity, so consumed by the things of, of God that in Acts 20, 22 through 24, uh, in Acts 20, actually a prophet a modern-day prophet in that time named Agabus, actually tells Paul, by the way, if you go here to this city, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul, all these bad things. We don't want you to go. So he gets like a prophetic word that's accurate and that not good stuff's going to happen. And this is Paul's response. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So I'm going to go anyway. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. Then he defines that work, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. Then would that be true of all of us? And it's definitely not true of me on some days. But I want it to be every day. 
And may it be true of all of us that our lives are worth nothing to us unless we're working for the Lord. What else would we do, right? It's all temporal. Our lives should be worth nothing to us unless we're using them for Jesus. One final text. Matthew 6, famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives some very specific instructions, ones that we do not take all that seriously. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves may break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Then he adds, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we are called to be driven by eternity. Here's the thing, right? We're told not to store up for ourselves treasures on this earth because they're so valuable. They're so given to decay, to corrosion, to being stolen, to market crashes, to whatever might happen. And he doesn't just say don't do that because that all isn't very helpful, right? It's not very helpful when someone just tells you, don't do X. It's more helpful, much more helpful when they say, don't do X, but instead do Y. So Jesus here says, don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven or in on earth. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's a promise we ignore so often. And it's okay to want to store up treasures in heaven. Jesus is telling us that we should. It's okay to think about your life in terms of, man, like, I'm doing this. I want some treasures in heaven. I'm willing to sacrifice some stuff here to not be concerned about this so that when I get there, I can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And then what those treasures look like, I don't know exactly, but I can trust that they're going to be pretty good. And they're not going to wear out. To be driven by eternity. How do you do this, though? How do you store up treasures, right? If we're told not to worry about those things, but to worry about these things, well, how do you do it? Let me go through a handful of things, but let me make one important, important point. It's a key, and it even says key on the slide. This isn't performance-based, okay? But it is effort-sensitive. Here's what I mean by that. When you're working and you're driven by eternity and you're going for the things of heaven, You're not performing to receive God's love. You already have it. You're not trying to earn something from him in terms of acceptance, right, or redemption or any of those things or value. He already settled that on the cross, that you're valuable, you're redeemed, you're accepted, all these things. So you're not trying to earn your way into heaven. It's not performance-based, but it is effort-sensitive. In other words, God's not opposed to effort, He criticized and was harsh on the Pharisees because they were about performance. But we're told over and over and over and over again to work hard, right? To study, to show yourself approved, to workmen who need not be ashamed. Like, you're supposed to do these things. So, it's not performance-based, but it's effort-sensitive. I don't want you to go out and just be like, all right, I've just got to earn it all now. Like, that's not, you would have missed it, so please don't do that. So, I'm going to give you, as we close here, I don't know, some things. One, two, five, eight, nine things. I don't know, some stuff. I don't have them numbered. They're, I just counted right there. Um, so just, these are things. and I, I don't, Some of them I'll elaborate on. Some of them I may not as much. We'll see. So the first one is, how do we, are we driven by eternity? We must trust that in the end it will all be worth it. I mean, that's the question that's so important to ask yourself. Do you really believe Jesus? And I don't mean like, do you really believe? I mean like, do you really, do you really believe Jesus? Do you really believe that it's all gonna be worth it? That all that he says is gonna come to fruition? Do you really believe that the Jesus way of life is not just the best way, but the only way? Do you really believe that? So if we're gonna be driven by eternity, it has to start with this belief, this core conviction, this deep-seated faith that we must, that we, we trust that in the end it will all be worth it. Okay? Next. And I'll come back to that one a little bit, but next. We must cultivate the ability to delay gratification. 
We must cultivate the ability to delay gratification. This is, we're playing the long game here. The fruit of a lot of the stuff that we're going to do, we're not going to see the result of it here on this earth. It's going to be in that next life. It's so hard for us, isn't it, to delay gratification in a culture where you can get anything you want about as quick as you want it. I don't need to beat that dead horse because we talk about that a lot, but we must cultivate the ability to delay gratification, to think about things, to think about things from an eternal perspective. Just because I can do this doesn't mean that I necessarily should. In our culture, we're told that resisting your urge is borderline heretical, right? Like the cultural blasphemy is to say that you feel something, but you shouldn't do it. Like that suggestion is just met with so much resistance. But Christians were supposed to be different. We must cultivate the ability to delay gratification. Number three, this one I'll definitely explain. We must develop a prophetic imagination. Here's what I mean by that. When I said earlier that we must trust that in the end it will all be worth it, a lot of us, we want to trust, but the images of heaven that we have are terrible. Like, I grew up with a lot of these where you're like, I don't know that I want to go there. Like, you know, some babies in diapers with harps, sitting on clouds, playing, like, you know, old music that you don't like. And you're like, I don't like sitting in church for this for 15 minutes. I don't want to do this for eternity. You know, like, and I don't mean, I'm not trying to slam anything. I'm just saying that, like, that's not what heaven is going to be like, right? How many of you, and don't raise your hand, this is somewhat rhetorical, but it's like, how many times have you ever just laid in a room with no noise, no anything, laid there, and just imagined heaven? Just ask the Holy Spirit to fill your head with imagery of heaven, to dream about that, to think about that to think about what it will be like, what it might be like. There's stuff in the Bible that tells us little bits and pieces and gives us inklings and stuff like that. But it, it says that it's, it's more than the eye has ever seen or that we can even fully imagine, but it doesn't say we shouldn't imagine it. So we have to cultivate a prof, or develop a prophetic imagination. We have to begin to think about this stuff in the same way that when I was running, right, I would think about crossing the finish line of the race. I would imagine what it would be like, how I'd feel, how, you know, all the situations would be. And that's what moved me in that direction. A lot of times we just don't do that, and I get it. But we have to develop prophetic imagination to think about what that will be like. Next, we must set our eyes on the finish line. So I spoke to that earlier. We have to keep the end always in mind. We have to keep the end always in mind. It's that well done, good and faithful servant. It's something that reminds us that we have a goal, that we're trying to become like Jesus, and Jesus was driven by eternity, and if he was, so should we be. And how do we do that? Well, we're forgetful, so we've got to just make sure our eyes are set on the finish line. Whatever it takes, you've got to look down and see what's coming. These last few. The next one is allow the Holy Spirit to renovate your heart. So for a lot of us, to be driven by eternity, there's a lot of work we have to do, and we can't do it on our own. The good news is we don't have to. So you have to allow the Holy Spirit to renovate your heart. The Holy Spirit is a very kind spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit doesn't generally come in, generally speaking, and heavily violate your own free will. So it's important that you offer yourself up, like Romans says, as a living sacrifice. So the prayer I'd encourage you to pray is come and do whatever you want to. Holy Spirit, come and do whatever you want to. I want to be driven by eternity. I want to fix my eyes in the finish line. I want to store up treasures in heaven. I don't want to get caught up in the things of this world. I want to set my face like flint. Come and do whatever you want to because I know there's a lot of blockages and there's a lot of baggage and there's a lot of things that I'm disconnected from that I'm going to need to be connected to in order to move this way. So just come and do whatever you want to. Next is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, specifically in the areas of values and identity. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, specifically in the areas of value and identity. There's a whole sermon in that one line. I spoke to this earlier, who you are in Christ, that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works 
prepared for you in advance, that your identity is primarily as a Jesus follower and everything else is a distant second, that your identity is primarily as a beloved child of God and everything else is a distant, distant second, that your values are supposed to be kingdom values, which Jesus spelled out so many times to start with the Sermon on the Mount if you want a, a good place to start. But we need to be transformed because so much of of so many of us have assimilated cultural values and cultural identities without even knowing it. The next, Tim, if you want to just go ahead and come up here real quick to play for a few minutes as I close. The next, this is a key. This is an absolute key. It's already on the screen. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with radical love. It's absolutely the key. Paul says we can do all kinds of stuff. We can heal the sick. We can raise the dead. We can preach the most amazing sermons in the history of sermons. We can grow our church to the biggest church in the history of churches. We can do all this stuff, whatever we do. And if we don't do it, if it's not born of love, he says it's just a resounding gong. It's a clanging cymbal. It's an annoying sound at best. So if we're going to do any of this stuff, if we're going to be driven by eternity, change in the areas of values and identity, we have to be filled with radical love. Radical love. And I believe that if you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with radical love, I, will, I can almost guarantee he'll answer that prayer. It's just do you want it to be answered. <laughs> Last two. is to... Be so heavenly-minded that you're earthly amazing. If you've ever heard the old saying, There's so, that person's so heavenly-minded, you know, they're just no earthly good. I don't know what that means exactly, but I'd like us to be so heavenly-minded that we're earthly amazing. That we're so focused on the finish line, that we're so driven by eternity, that we're so concerned with storing up treasures in heaven that we're so filled with radical love that we so long to see his kingdom come that that looks like something and it plays itself out in the here and now as it was intended to. That we give of ourselves, that we sacrifice of ourselves, that we don't cling to our rights and what we deserve and what we're entitled to or our experiences or our pleasure, but that we're so focused on what he wants that it transforms our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplace and our community. The last one is to train yourself for things that last and just spend it all. Spend it all. Pour out whatever that precious thing is to you, pour it out. Whatever that alabaster jar full of expensive perfume is to you, break it open and pour it out for him. It's not worth keeping. Nothing that you have of this earth is worth keeping. Spend it all. Leave it all out on the field, right? It'll be worth it. You know, the truth is we all have half loves that are well worth leaving. We all have things that we're holding back. We all have set up idols. We all have some false gods. And if you're anything like me, you want to be rid of them things you may recognize, things that you don't. But I don't want to hold anything back. I want to spend it all. I want to leave it all at his feet. I want to be so heavenly minded that I'm earthly amazing, not for my own sake, but for his. I'm just a bond servant. I'm just a slave of Jesus. And that's the most beautiful kind of slavery. It's the only kind of slavery that's actually freedom. Be driven by eternity. What's that going to look like for you? I don't know exactly. I don't know. It may take some work, but it's worth it. Would you stand with me here as we just get ready to close? I don't know where you're at today with things. I don't know whether this message resonated with you or whether you're just like, oh, that's cool, it sounds good, but you know, I've got real stuff in life I've got to deal with. And 
I get it. I get it. But let me just pray for all of us that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would be driven by eternity, that we wouldn't cling to worthless idols, to things that satisfy for about five seconds and then leave us wanting more. Let's pray that we would be a church that considers our lives worth nothing unless we're doing the work that Jesus has given us to do. You just bow your heads. Jesus, we thank you that you considered us worth it. That you considered us joy. Being with us in eternity, you considered that a joyful thing. And that you are willing to endure the horrors of the cross in order to spend eternity in heaven with us. Thank you that you didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, even though you were in your very nature, God, but that you humbled yourself. Jesus, how could we do anything less than pour out our lives for you who poured out all of your life for us? Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to become like you. We want to be driven by eternity. We want to see with clear eyes. We want to hear with clear ears. We want to be able to discern and know what your will is. We don't want to hold anything back. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servants. I just pray for anyone right now in this room who just feels like this is, this is a moment where things are going to shift for them. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd empower them right now this wouldn't be just a Sunday morning high. This would be a long-lasting, long-sustained thing. That this, this morning, March 6th, 2022, would be a morning, a mark on their calendar where they say that was the day that everything changed. That was the day that everything shifted. That was the day when I went to church just because and I left a totally different person. Jesus, we're here to be transformed we know that you want to answer that prayer, Holy Spirit. So help us be filled with radical love to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Jesus, we just trust you that your promises are good <laughs> and that it will all be worth it. We just give you praise for this, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.